0: Welcome back to Love, Lindsay, a captivating podcast that delves into the realms of our past and embraces the cringy nostalgia that accompanies it. This week, I have my first guest on, and I am so excited to finally be recording this with Eddie, my husband. He's amazing. He's wonderful. He's talented. He's a 32nd degree Freemason and he's the commander of the American Legion Post here in Traverse City. He's also a business owner, and he co-owns our business that we run called Northern Michigan Mortuary Logistics. And he's a licensed embalmer and funeral director of 35 years. Today, he'll be reading to us an excerpt from something that I pushed him to write for so many years. I just wanted him to write down... His experience of leading up to joining the army and his experiences in the army. And he's such a good writer, and he has started that uh, writing that piece. And he's, you know, just barely started writing it. And we are lucky enough to be able to hear what he has written so far, even though it's very much a rough draft. So today we're going to be talking about. Um, how cathartic it is to write about traumatic things that have happened to us in our past and, you know, wondering, does it change the story or our memory of it once we write it down? So we'll find out as we discuss this further.
1: Well, hi there, love of my life. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be your first guest.
0: I'm so excited. I see that. (laughs) I just have a big smile plastered on my face.
1: Um, So, yeah, you pushed me to start writing uh, some of my experiences in the military. But, of course, that starts long before joining the military. For me, it started with September 11th. In the morning of September 11th, before anything had happened, I was uh, still working for a funeral home in the San Francisco area. Um, I was out on a night call picking up a... Body for the funeral home, probably three or four o'clock in the morning. And at that time, you know there was no satellite radio or anything like that, so I was listening to a morning, you know, my favorite morning station. But you know, they nobody plays music in the mornings; it's all talk shows, which really aggravated me. But um, so I'm sitting in the van, driving back to the funeral home, listening to a morning talk show. Thinking about something else altogether when I was. The story they were talking about on the radio kept uh, drawing my attention. And that's where I pick up in my, my little written piece here.
0: All right, let's get right into it.
1: All right. My thoughts were interrupted by the morning show mumbling in the background. The man and woman were talking about a plane that had hit the World Trade Center in New York City. My initial thought was, what a tragedy. For some reason, I was picturing a small Cessna-style plane. The pilot would be dead for sure, as would anyone on board a plane for that matter. Thoughts of a funeral director. (laughs) People in the building might be hurt or killed, and people on the ground? Well, who really knows? The radio show certainly did not. As they droned on, I began to wonder why they were stuck on this subject. They had no information, and through their giggling and attempts to call the World Trade Center... I could not ascertain what the hell this had to do with a 5 a.m. Tuesday morning in San Francisco. Arriving back at the mortuary, I went into the embalming room to sign in our new short-term resident. Where the hell is everybody, I thought. We should have a manager, an embalmer, and a maintenance guy here by now. I went into the TV room right next door to the embalming room and found everyone huddled around the 32-inch screen that was fixed on a skyscraper in Manhattan, billowing smoke. Clearly, I was missing something. First of all, the images I saw on the screen did not match the picture being painted by the dipshits on the radio. Second of all, what the hell is a World Trade Center anyway? I had heard those three words strung together before, but had no earthly idea of what it really was. The 21-year-old me could tell you absolutely nothing about politics, United States foreign policy, what a trade center was, how the stock market worked, nothing. Nothing. Growing up as the stepson of a cement contractor, we watched the news for sports and weather. We did not hold very many discussions about current events. I could tell you more about how the precarious alliances of the central and Axis powers of European countries combined with the assassination of an Archduke sparked the Great War than I could about shit that was happening right this very minute. As we stood around the TV in the mortuary break room, listening to stunned newscasters trying in vain to match their words to the images before us, we watched another plane strike the tower. Are we watching a replay? What the hell did we just see? As these questions crossed my mind, they were answered by the newscasters, even more rattled than they were just a moment ago. The second tower was hit by a second plane. I now knew two things. That was no Cessna, and none of this was an accident. As history shows, the situation deteriorated Deteriorated from there. The Pentagon, the plane in Pennsylvania, the collapse of the towers, the death toll mounting by the thousands, flights grounded, the nation held its breath. What landmark or populated area would be next? What other actions were planned? In the coming days, there were two angles that I latched onto as they were reported. First, the staggering death toll. As an embalmer, I thought I might be of some use. I was certainly in a unique position to go pretty much anywhere and do anything. Should I go to New York? The second angle being reported that caught my attention was America's response to an act of war. How do you go to war against a terrorist organization? Would it be a war in the traditional sense of the word? As those details began to play out, I set to work on figuring out how a young embalmer in California could be of any use in a mass casualty event of epic proportions 3,000 miles away. In an age before Google and information at one's fingertips, I turned to the Yellow Pages and found a number for the American Red Cross.
0: I just wanted to stop you right there because I wanted to have a quick sidebar, as we often do on this podcast while reading things that we've written before. Um, 9-11 was a traumatic event, and before... I asked you to read this. Um, I said, oh, I think it's so good that you're writing about things that have like traumatized you or past traumas. And you said, this wasn't traumatizing for me. This is, I'm not even talking about yet being in the army or being deployed. And then you started reading it to me and it absolutely was something traumatizing. 9-11 was traumatizing to pretty much everybody over, you know, the age of 11 or 12 in America at the time, and I think it's really cool and unique that you're writing out what happened that day because it was not only the beginning of your uh, military career, but also it was something, writing about what happened that day was something that was assigned to basically, I'm thinking, every student in school that could write in America at that time. I had to do it. I knew kids um, in elementary school had to do it. It's just something that I've heard throughout the years over and over again. So I think it's really cool that you have written down for posterity where you were that day and what happened. And it's even more special because it just it was something that jump started this whole career change for you. Um, And I think it's also really interesting and cool that. As you were watching this unfold, you know, when I I was 18 or 17 when it happened and I was not thinking that it was a terrorist organization and like, how do you go to war with a terrorist organization? So I just think it's so cool that you're able to like, remember that you thought something like that and were able to write it down. It's just so unique. Um, And I also just, I'm kind of laughing at the reference to the Yellow Pages which is mm-hmm. not something that kids these days know what it is. It's It was the part of the phone book. The white pages, if I remember correctly, were residential, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then you could like look up anybody's name and then see – I think their home address too, right? Sometimes. Home address and then their phone number. and Then the yellow pages, which were – alphabetical order your uh, local businesses so
1: they weren't in alphabetical order by business they were in alphabetical order by category oh so sometimes you had to check several categories if your business was a little different
0: (laughs) that's just that's crazy to me
1: there were green pages too and i can't remember what those were maybe somebody knows
0: maybe somebody does know let us know if you know there's a little bit of cringy nostalgia for you Anyway, Eddie, why don't you go ahead and continue on with reading your piece for us?
1: Well, back to the trauma, real quick. Uh, you mentioned that, uh, you know, this, I never thought this was traumatizing to me. You know, a trauma obviously comes in many different forms, mm-hmm. especially emotional trauma. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel traumatized at the time, and I don't consider myself having been traumatized, but it certainly changed my life.
0: Absolutely. I
1: dropped everything and took a complete 180. So yeah, um, yeah.
0: Well, think about it this way: it was something horrible that happened that was bad enough that it mobilized you into joining the military to fight for our country. So, yeah, call it what you will.
1: So, yeah, I flipping through the yellow pages, found a number for the American Red Cross, and I'll pick back up where I left off here. After being bounced around, it was obvious that my particular skill set was not in high demand for the response in either locations. The thought of joining the National Guard crossed my mind. That seed must have been planted because of hearing that the National Guard was responding to these sites to help with the recovery effort. Helping with the recovery effort was exactly what I was trying to do. So back to the Yellow Pages I went, and there did not appear to be a listing for the National Guard. Maybe I need to look specifically for the Army National Guard. As I sit and write this today, I cannot help but think what an idiot the 21-year-old me was. Don't judge me. That's just what I thought. As I pointed out, I knew nothing of the world and our place in it. I was completely self-absorbed. My first job in a funeral home was while I was still in high school at the age of 17. I moved to San Francisco to attend mortuary school when I was 18, graduated at 19, and two years of apprenticeship received my license when I was 21. My entire and short adult life was devoted to accomplishing these goals, and those goals were all-consuming. As mortuary students and apprentices, we were expected to work long hours, be on call at night, and learn our craft by way of paying our dues. What little downtime there was, and even during some of the uptime, we filled with drinking. There was little time for much else. Until September 11th, 2001, I spent very little time concerning myself with the news, and without the constant barrage of social media, local and world events were not even remotely on my radar. I did, however, have enormous respect for the military veterans and our history as a country. At the very least, this highly distracted, self-absorbed young man was a patriot. My grandfather served as an infantryman in World War II with the 119th Infantry Regiment, of the 30th Infantry Division. One of my early mentors in funeral service, Ellis Roth, was a Navy veteran of the Pacific Fleet in World War Two. Growing up around men like that, the thought of joining the military was always in the back of my mind. In high school, I was a fared Midland trumpet player and aspired to be in the Marine Corps band. That aspiration was quickly lost when the recruiter that walked around our high school with his chest puffed out thought it was laughable. I didn't see the joke, I was serious. Mortuary science took the place of any dreams I had of being a musician, and the thought of enlisting in the military went cold. As I thumbed through the pages of the phone book, looking for a way to contact the National Guard, it did not occur to me that the Guard was actually part of the military. Had I thought about it for more than 30 seconds, I may have realized that I was hell-bent on finding some way to be useful in the wake of 9-11. Nothing else really seemed to matter to me anymore. As the days and weeks lurched forward, anything I had ever wanted to do lost its importance and its relevance to me. Earning that embalmer's license was a turning point. I was not so distracted anymore. I I started to look at the world for the first time with me in it and endeavored to discover what my place was going to be. I took my stepfather's advice. The cement contractor used to tell me to learn a trade, not get a degree, not get a job, Certainly not stay at home where it's safe and cozy. Learn a trade was the advice he gave me, and it was the advice I took. At the time, embalming to me was my trade, and Mortuary College was a trade school. Having that license meant it was time to look up, open my eyes and mind, and take a good hard look at where I was going next. My fingers slid down the thin pages of the phone book and landed on Army recruiter. Surely they would know who to contact for the National Guard. So I called them. A soft-spoken female staff sergeant answered the phone. Do you know who I would contact about joining the National Guard, I asked. She turned the tables and asked why I did not want to join the active duty army. I pled ignorance, as I had no idea what any of it would entail. I'm willing to talk about whatever options there are available, I said. So when are you going to come talk to me, she asked. To that I asked, what are you doing right now? Waiting on you, she replied.
0: Sounds like you guys are flirting. I always think that when you read that part. <laughs>
1: <laughs> she, she had a hot voice. What are you going to do? <laughs> Within an hour, I found myself at the Armed Forces Recruitment Center in Daly City, face-to-face with Staff Sergeant Arsenault. I reflected on the past two weeks or so. On September 10th, if you would have told me I would be sitting across from an Army recruiter, I possibly would have laughed at you. But there I sat. For the first time, it seemed that I was poised to do something special, something significant. My head swirled with thoughts, and suddenly it seemed as though the world was opening up in front of me. Possibilities that I had never considered were now very real opportunities. It was exciting, scary, and adventurous. Anytime I shied about how much my life was about to change, I reminded myself of the lives that changed that day in September, and the lives that ended. The country had changed. My illusions of reality and safety changed. My priorities had definitely changed. The thought of going to New York to serve as an embalmer no longer seemed like large enough of a sacrifice. Even the National Guard for me paled in comparison to signing on the dotted line and accepting a one-way ticket to God knows where. Of course, looking at the whole idea of running off to join the Army on a whim, one could argue that a naive, spontaneous young man was making an ill-timed and poorly planned decision, one that is impossible to undo, and I would not fault that analysis. Staff Sergeant Arsenault did her job as a recruiter too. She answered my questions, settled my fears, and I'm sure she has, and I'm sure she has had to do with so many young recruits, bolstered my ego, and told me everything was going to be okay. Armed with the information from my first meeting with Staff Sergeant Arsenault, I called home. I had no family in the San Francisco Bay Area. My home was in the dry stretches of farmland of the fertile San Joaquin Valley, halfway between Galt and Lodi. For those unfamiliar with California, that would be halfway between Stockton and Sacramento. I was about 90 miles from my Bay Area home, close enough to visit on the weekend, but far enough not to make the trip very often. My mom, stepdad, ever supportive, hesitatingly applauded the decision. Of course, they had their apprehensions when what parents would not. They seem proud that I was even considering this. So far, everything I've written, by the way, this is the only part that I get emotional about. Mm. My next call was to Grandpa. Now, this was an interesting phone call to make because no one ever talked to Grandpa. Well, excuse me, no one ever called to talk to Grandpa. When you called the house, you spoke only to Grandma. Grandpa was a man of few words. What words he did speak were laden with German slang and slurred with a thick Dakota accent. He could be stern and at times scary, but as a father of seven and grandfather of 14, family was everything. Stern and stoic as he was, you could get him to smile, laugh, and at times cry. Another reason Grandpa was not the phone type was because he could not hear a damn thing anyone was saying. We had to practically yell at him just to say hello. However, in my mind... At this crucial decision point in my life, I needed his blessing, I guess. This is because the man I called Grandpa used to be PFC Arthur Marzoff Rifleman in B Company, 119th Infantry Regiment. He was pulled from his work as a farmhand in North Dakota and drafted into the infantry. He fought with the 119th across France and into Germany, earning two Purple Hearts for shrapnel wounds he sustained and a Bronze Star for heroic actions under fire. The whole family was proud of his military service and considered him a hero. Grandpa chose not to discuss his time in the Army much. He stuck to stories that were safe, stories about basic training and asshole leaders, as we all do. Whenever it did come up, regardless of how lighthearted the story, I always looked in his eyes and they would be welled up with tears that never quite broke free. It was as if he was sparing us the horrid details, keeping those details locked away, still protecting his family from the horrors of war, the atrocities he was witness to, and the mayhem inflicted upon the world. I used to believe that he would not tell this story because the memories were too much to bear, too much to dredge up. They may well have been. However, today, I believe it may be because he knew no one would fully understand the weight of what he was saying and the implications of those experiences had on his life every day since. Now, at 80 years old, whatever feelings or emotions left indelible on his conscience were just as fresh in 2001 as they were in 1945. To me, his opinion mattered. I dialed the number, and it was no surprise that Grandma answered. She, though, was surprised when I asked to speak to Grandpa. I got right to the point. "'With everything going on, it looks like we're going to war,' I explained. I was thinking about joining the Army. "'Oh, okay.' he replied. Trying to get just a little more out of him. I pushed. I was wondering what your thoughts were on that were. I was shouting now and looked around to a couple stunned co-workers in the break room where I started the call in privacy, staring at me. He replied, well, I didn't like the army much. It was hard. Don't volunteer for anything. I did not have the heart to tell him that no one was forcing me to sign up volunteering would be the first step towards serving in the first damn place. He figured that all I, ne- I needed to know about his, this life-altering choice oh, excuse me, he figured that was all I needed to know about this life-altering choice and concluded with, here's your grandmother, before unknowingly hanging up on me. No, I was not expecting a heart-to-heart on the subject. Come to think of it, I don't know what I was expecting. I just knew that I had to make that call. I came home after basic training and visited my grandparents at their home in Lodi. The house, built in the 1940s, had built-in bookshelves spanning an entire wall, probably six shelves high. Those shelves were packed with photos of their seven children, their families, and grandkids. The only photos not on those shelves sat on top of the TV, front and center. One was Grandpa's 8x10 basic training photo. The other was mine. Grandma and Grandpa did not get caught up on words. Actions and small gestures were the way they showed affection, approval, and pride. Calling Grandpa on the phone and telling him that I was going to telling him what I was going to do meant nothing. The action of raising my right hand, putting on the uniform, and shipping to points unknown is what he understood.
0: Thank you so much Eddie for reading that for me again. I Can't hear it enough. You're such an amazing writer that even though I know this story, I get lost in the storytelling of it every single time. Thank you. Yeah, of course. And like the way that you record details, this is just, I couldn't ask for a better example for this podcast of how writing is a form of therapy. It's a way of like recording things that have happened to us to look back on. It's a way of exploring how we really feel about it and looking for ways of healing and being in touch with ourselves. And it's a way of um, even embracing our mental health and cringy nostalgia and watching you read this again And, you know, your eyes get misty and it just it really drives home for me how important writing these things down are. And I think it's important to drive home for everybody listening that even if you think you're not a good writer. To write down. About important events that happen to you, like in this podcast so far, I've talked about. The beginning of, of our relationship and how you and I met. And there will be many other things in the coming podcast episodes that I'll talk about, just events in my life that I wrote about that were important to me. And I just think it's really cool that you've started writing this out and I cannot wait to hear more.
1: Well, I think you're right that the, the writing doesn't have to be good it just has to be yours
0: absolutely
1: it has to be from your heart and, and you have to be truthful with yourself mm-hmm. if you're going to take the time to record events or feelings or emotions or anything like that you can't lie to yourself you know i i can't write any of this for myself and and make myself sound like a hero i have to be true about you know, who I was at the time, and and what I was actually going through. Because if you're just going to, you know, embellish to yourself, you know, you you have to write like you're writing to yourself. And you you can't, you know, lie to yourself. That's not effective if you're using it as a form of uh, catharsis or therapy. So I guess if you're looking for advice, just be true in what you're writing
0: and this piece is every bit you. Not only is it clear and concise, but it also has your dry, witty sense of humor. And um, I just I really love that how that comes through on here. And you're I can see you searching right now like you, you're like, "It does?" I'm like, <laughs>
1: Wait, "What was funny?"
0: <laughs> <laughs> there are a few points that make you want to chuckle. Like, I don't know, you just have to be there, I guess. So, thank you so much for coming on and reading this for us. And I cannot wait to have you. Back on again. When you've written some more. Because I'm sure everyone else is going to be very excited. To hear what happens next in your story.
1: Well you have to wait for the book.
0: Oh I see. Okay.
1: I'm, I'm kidding. I'll be happy to come back.
0: Okay thank you. To close out today's podcast. I want to talk a little bit about. Just real quick. Writing. Writing something that we've gone through in a story-like fashion and just some tips and tricks and words of advice if you're not a naturally gifted writer like Eddie is. So uh, two semesters ago, I took a writing class through uh, Grand Valley State University, and it was a fiction writing class, and I learned a lot about story writing. And it was cool because I got to make things that happened in my life into stories, this is not about the blog posts that I've been reading. This is way afterwards. Um, so there are three main things that I think are important when we're writing a story. If you're looking to write something out like what Eddie did that you went through, um, you have to have a good hook. You have to remember to have good characters you can relate to, and you have to remember the voice. Now, the hook of a story is an opening statement, which usually the it's usually the first sentence. Um, And it grabs the reader's attention so that they want to read on. And this can be done by using a few different types of hooks, which are a question, a quote, a statistic, or an antidote. And also, make sure you keep your, the second thing, characters, make sure you keep your characters relatable and interesting And also the voice of the story is really important too. And what is a voice in literature? The voice expresses the narrator or author's emotions, attitude, tone, and point of view through artful, well thought out use of word choice and diction. So like I was just saying to Eddie a minute ago, I could hear his kind of dry, sarcastic witty um, sense of humor coming through. And it just made the story pop that much more. Thank you so much for listening today, you guys. This meant the world to me to have Eddie on here. I have a few more guests lined up for you guys. So stay tuned for that. As always, thank you for stopping by. Take care and I will see you next week. Love